Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Max Everett, the Chief Information Officer of the Department of Energy, and Jennifer Silk, a Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity at DOE. The Department of Energy obviously plays a key role in cybersecurity from both a federal perspective, meaning working within the federal government, but also in the private sector uh, around the electricity grid. Let me start with Jen first, since you're the Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity. Discuss a little bit about DOE's role. Give us a sense of, of where we're at. Of course, cybersecurity is one of the Secretary's top priorities, and one of our key missions is supporting uh, the energy sector, uh, the folks in industry, to ensure a secure and resilient grid from cyber attack. And so the Department of Energy actually serves as the federal interface with the energy sector as what's called their sector-specific agency. And so we provide that lead role with them in terms of working between public-private partnerships. Uh, in fact, DOE is the only agency that is statutorily defined as such. In the 2015 FAST Act, uh, we were designated as the sector-specific agency for cybersecurity for that sector. And so what makes us unique in that role is that we, of course, have 17 national labs that work with industry and bring this deep technical expertise to bear on the problem. And we're also actually managing these threats against energy infrastructure as owners ourselves through our four power marketing administrations that are integral components of our nation's grid as well. So I definitely want to go back and talk about the national labs. They're doing some excellent work, and I've gotten to talk to some of the chief information officers at the national labs over the years. But before I do that, let me bring in Max. Max, you're relatively new to the energy department, but you're not necessarily new to cybersecurity nor new to the government. Give me a little bit of a sense of uh, what your role is around the cyber and what you're seeing as you've walked into the energy department. Well, the energy department, is, as Jennifer pointed out, has, I think, a unique set of capabilities within the government because of because of the labs, but also because of the general mission for the Department of Energy, uh, the focus on just science and technology, filling out all the different missions this department has from, you know, our nuclear mission, our energy development mission, and, and just our pure science mission, I think really give us a lot of assets that, frankly, I haven't seen, you know, as I've been around other departments and agencies over the years. And so that's definitely been one of the exciting pieces for me coming in to this job. We've got, uh, obviously, because we've such such a diversified uh, set of challenges and things that we work on here at the department, we've got some unusual cyber challenges, but we also have a number of those great assets that we bring to bear. And so it's been exciting. The, the department is rapidly increasing our cyber posture, which has been good. I think you'll see that uh, uh, we're going to show a lot of improvement over even the next year or so. Uh, in what we're doing in protecting uh, the infrastructure here. And let's go down that path just for a minute. When, when you talk about the Energy Department itself and protecting its infrastructure, we've seen grades from the Federal Information Security Management Act, FISMA. We've seen stuff in, in FATARA, for instance, and, and grades are nice. But give me a sense of, of what are you doing as you've come in. And again, I know you've only been there a short time, and maybe that's something Jen can also talk a little bit too, is what's energy doing internally to really improve its cyber posture? We're doing a couple of things. So we've got, again, because we've got so many different internal partners who have capability, like the labs and other groups, we're getting more collaborative within the environment. I've, you know, That was working far before I got here. The secretary, I think, has made that a priority to make sure that, that across the department, everyone is working together and collaborating because 
They bring a unique set of skills and capabilities uh, and personnel. So that's already been moving well before I got here, frankly. But I think one of the areas that's been another priority for us is modernization. And you're seeing that across government. I think the value that we see in modernization is beyond simply the cost savings. We're also seeing a lot of uh, capability in security when you go to some of the new modern tools. You move away from legacy, so you lose some of the security flaws those might have. And as we consolidate and move to the cloud, um, there's really a lot of additional opportunities for visibility in the cloud. Uh, and frankly, when you're going to some of the commercial providers that do this 24-7 across the globe, they're really bringing a next level of cyber capability uh, to what we do on a lot of our commodity work. So I think that's also been a huge help, and we're trying to accelerate that as quick as we can here at Energy. Jennifer, did you want to jump in as well on, on this? Where is your role fitting as the senior advisor when it comes to internal cybersecurity efforts for the Energy Department? Well, of course, I help to support Max and his efforts as much as possible. Uh, what's really interesting about DOE is that it really is an exciting and challenging mission for securing the infrastructure. Um, because there are so many different components to our mission that it really in many ways mirrors its uh, microcosm of the broader federal landscape. So uh, the work that Max is doing really does sort of mirror what we do across the entire federal government, just in the sense of bringing so many different players together and different types of infrastructure. So we help to support that as much as possible and make sure that we build synergy where we can across uh, our work with the sector as well as the work that Max is doing internally and a lot of the work that the labs are doing uh, that support other departments and agencies. Uh, we have this amazing core, this you know treasure really of 17 national labs, and they're a powerful engine for a lot of cybersecurity efforts. We have, for example, uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab uh, is where a very powerful intrusion detection tool called BRO uh, was first created uh, and is now out and available, uh, widely used. In fact, uh, major technology companies like Amazon, Apple, and Cisco use it, as well as many of our federal partners. And I want to go down that path with the National Labs. You mentioned that earlier. Berkeley's a great example. There's also a lot of projects at Sandia. There's a project going on at Idaho. Talk, Walk me through a couple of the projects that really stand out to you guys in the cybersecurity world. Well, one that I really love is that Savannah River National Laboratory. They have this very interesting and novel uh, cybersecurity solution where they use low-Earth orbit satellites and random number streams to validate a user's position and then limit their computer access based on their geographic location to help make it a lot easier to manage who's accessing their network and their approach really could change the way we prevent cyber attacks, uh, particularly in remote locations, uh, which of course, as you know, much of the grid is uh, located in remote locations. We also have a very collaborative research and development project set up here where industry partners, universities, and our labs all partner together on projects uh, to bring their own perspective to it, uh, to make sure that the projects they're working on are really working towards uh, filling the gaps and the priority needs that uh, the ultimate owners would need. So, for example, Sandia National Lab is partnering with the private sector to develop a commercial solution that prevents tampering with the kinds of field devices you see attached to utility poles. Um, because these systems are out in the open, they can be a very inviting target for hackers. And as newer systems are coming online, they're offering more options for remote operation, which is fantastic. It offers a great deal of efficiency, but of course it also makes it a little bit more vulnerable. So in this pro project, uh, we're making a way to 
uh, ensure that the systems can actually sense any physical tampering and they can signal to operators that something's wrong. All of them are very interesting. Let me back up to the Savannah River one for a second. One of the things about it, and just want to make sure we get this uh, clear, is this is being done for the Savannah River employees, so this is a test that's happening now, or is this already in, in, in production and being offered to whomever wants to buy it, use it, borrow it, et cetera? So that's exactly what they're working through right now to see, you know, they've really tested it, make sure that it works, develop the technology. Uh, and then we, of course, try to see as quickly as possible how um, moving these things to make them available and, and really make the projects that come out of the labs as accessible as possible to other users. And I think that's the key. I mean, a lot of times you hear back from NASA or other agencies about a tech transfer program or something similar to that. I imagine that's part of the end goal is to as you mentioned about the uh, Berkeley National Lab intrusion detection tools being now being widely used in the commercial sector too, that role that the government plays is huge. Max, jump in a little bit and talk a little bit about that role from because you have a lot of private sector experience too. The role that the Energy Department can play in helping kind of move the private sector forward. Well, and the labs have a long history of that, right? So they're the part of what the labs are doing is they're doing a mix of everything from pure science research to very focused things that are that are made to be moved through text transfer and commoditization to get out into the private sector and increase again cybersecurity for the entire country. Uh, and so they have a long history of that. Jennifer brought up one good example, which is Bro. We we use Bro as well here at the Department of Energy. I think you're going to see an increased focus on them looking to find things that can quickly come to market or the underlying technologies can be brought out to the private sector so they can build a next level of opportunity. I think a bigger picture for cybersecurity as well, uh, for our labs, even the ones that don't necessarily formally do cybersecurity, all of our labs in different ways have a deep expertise in, in operational technology, right? So we're moving into a world of ubiquitous sensors. We're moving into a world where virtually everything has got a some type of general purpose computing capability in it, uh, right? You think everything from refrigerators to, um, you know, to lampposts and everything in between. And all of our labs have a deep expertise there. And so they're really building the models for, for managing and securing uh, that next generation of operational technology. Uh, and so part of our goal is to make sure that we bring in you know, private sector. We bring in other departments and agencies um, across, you know, certainly the energy sector, but even other sectors to come in and better understand the capability and the things that the labs have been developing. And you bring up that next generation. This is goes beyond just cybersecurity. It goes into high performance computing. You guys also are working on a kind of a next generation, if you will, high performance computing effort. Talk a little bit about that effort and how it relates back to, as it was Max said, kind of this ubiquitous, deep ubiquitous technology that really can can have an impact broadly. So it's really not just about solving the problems of today that we see in cybersecurity, but really looking to tomorrow and understanding what's on the horizon. And DOE is a world leader in computational capability. Five of the top 10 fastest supercomputers in the world are here in DOE labs, uh, including the Titan system that's Oak Ridge National Lab. This system is the fourth fastest supercomputer in the world, uh, but it does still rank behind two systems in China and one in Switzerland. And while we retain global leadership in the application of high-performance computing, uh, the international competition in this area is fierce. So the next milestone really in this area is exascale. Exascale computing, that's a billion, billion calculations per second. 
and we're leading the U.S. effort in the critical race to exascale computing. Uh, these systems will be 50 times faster than today's most powerful computers, and the benefits that we will receive from that are numerous. They'll provide more realistic simulations for complex processes and benefit industries uh, all across the country, energy, pharmaceutical, aerospace, automotive, uh, national security challenges. It really helps uh, create a space where we can get after the most pressing challenges. Do you get a sense of the timing? I mean, it's hard to predict anything. I know that. But when you talk, you talk about it like it's here today, which I, uh, which I hope it would be because it's, just, it's so exciting. But do you get a sense of, is this a, a short-term breakthrough or is this something that the energy department will be working with its partners on for, you know, five to ten more years or, or however long? Well, we are leading the uh, an exascale computing project, and its goal is to deliver uh, exascale capability by 2021. So we're working very hard to deliver as quickly as possible as we can on this breakthrough. We have to take a break. My guests today are Max Everett, the Chief Information Officer at the Energy Department, and Jennifer Silk, a Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity at DOE. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Max Everett, the CIO at the Department of Energy, and Jennifer Silk, a Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity at DOE. Jen, Max, you both brought up over the course of our conversation so far today the work with the private sector. Jen, you began by kicking off saying that Energy Department has a unique relationship with the energy sector. Talk a little bit about how you're interacting with the private sector, how you guys are help coordinating defense, cyber risk mitigation, cyber defense, and, and the like when it comes to the electricity grid, which we know is something like 85 90% is owned by the private sector. That's right. It is. And so because so much of it is privately owned, we really do have to work very closely with them. And we do that through a series. Uh, certainly when you speak to the grid, we have the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, through which we work very closely with 30-some-odd CEOs in the industry uh, and key leadership in government, and really work through to synchronize priorities and ensure that uh, what we're working towards uh, is is complementary to one another and that we're really working uh, in concert to secure our nation's energy infrastructure. We're focused here at DOE on uh, three priorities with the sector, uh, working with them to enhance visibility and situational awareness uh, across all energy assets, especially control systems, as well as strengthening cyber incident response capabilities. I mean, now, this is anything from deepening our collaboration with states and continuing to work through common playbooks of how uh, we would work together in a significant incident, both with industry and with state and local governments. Or it could even be uh, maintaining specialized energy infrastructure cyber response teams that are tailored to the unique needs of the sector and that specific infrastructure. Uh, so we continue to work with them on uh, R&D priorities, on uh, immediate security and resilience, uh, and of course ensuring that uh, we are working towards a inherently resilient infrastructure. Now, I know one of the big challenges is a lot of the SCADA systems, these uh, grid systems, were not built with cybersecurity in mind. In fact, they were not even built with the Internet in mind. And now you're having to retrofit or, fortunately, we're going to use the term bolt-on instead of build-in a lot of the cybersecurity initially. Are you starting to see, as energy departments starting to see, starting to work with the private sector folks to move away from this bolt-on and, and, and move to newer systems? I know Max brought up 
uh, legacy IT and, and modernization for the energy department itself. Is that same trend happening within the private sector and, and the electricity grid? Absolutely. We certainly see as new infrastructure is being developed, new components are built, security is more and more being uh, built in from the start. And it's definitely a clear priority, uh, both among companies uh, and those of us who work with them. And so the challenge, though, that you see there is that doing wholesale replacements can be very expensive. And these are pieces of equipment that are often designed to be in place for a very, very long time in the face of technology that changes very rapidly. So the sector works very carefully to ensure as many mitigations as possible uh, to ensure the security, especially of those operational systems, to ensure that they're not as susceptible to some of the intrusions that you might see. But what we're also doing is, as we work towards creating systems that are uh, inherently more resilient, we're also looking at solutions like at Sandia National Lab, which is a project called ADSEC, and this is Artificial Diversity and Defense Security. And this is a project that's really trying to help sort of create that with existing architecture. And that's really what makes this one so interesting is that it's able to be retrofitted into existing infrastructure to make the whole system inherently more secure and resilient. And this project essentially applies moving target defense to energy infrastructure, and it enables operators to randomize the network topology to help prevent reconnaissance on their system in the first place. It's also working to develop detect attacks using machine learning algorithms while developing a variety of automated defense responses to be able to mitigate attacks. So it's really using machine learning to detect attacks, isolate them, uh, and mitigate them before they even have to be identified by a human interface. That's an exciting project. I know just to, as you went through each of the things that it's trying to do, retrofitted to the existing infrastructure, randomize the network topology so the attacker can't really get a sense of what the network looks like. And then the machine learning piece, I, I got to ask, how close is this? Are we talking about, again, a year or two away, or is this a, another long-term project? I do think this one is actually closer to, in fact, uh, the project leads at Sandia have been working with industry partners uh, to already test this solution out on existing infrastructure, and I think they are maybe a year or two from being able to make this available more widely. So they've already moved into real tests and, and seen results from even the lab center tests they've done on some of the smaller scale uh, infrastructure testing they've done. All right, that's an exciting project, something I, I know we'll be following as it, as it continues to move down the process. You also brought up this idea of uh, cyber response capabilities working together, maybe special cyber response teams. Talk a little bit about the partnership that the Energy Department has with the Homeland Security Department. Obviously, we know that from Homeland Security Department, they work with all the sectors, whether it's energy or telecom or banking. And when you see something like WannaCry or the ransomware attacks that we've seen m more recently, they are, are working very closely to get the word out, to, to share signatures, to share information. How, where does energy fit in with the Homeland Security Department? They're a fantastic partner, and it's especially helpful to have the complement of DHS that looks across all sectors uh, and can really help connect the dots between what they may be seeing or sharing or discussing and doing with other sectors and how that might impact the energy sector, for example, or how work that we're doing with the energy sector may impact others. Um, certainly, there are a lot of interdependencies among various sectors uh, where DOE really adds value 
you is that as a specialized experts with our sector and with the partnerships that we have formed over the years with our sector, we really provide that specialized expertise. Where this really comes into play and where we talk about response capabilities, certainly DHS has a great deal and we rely on them very heavily for that. But when we look at the federal government and what we do for uh, supporting the sector in a significant incident, how are we best prepared to do that? And so that's where we look at how can we what best protects the sector, what helps them the most, and it may be that we would want to have uh, folks who are very closely aligned with our industry partners um, working on that specific infrastructure so that they can work as seamlessly as possible uh, with those teams. The sector themselves, in fact, have self-organized and created what they call cyber mutual assistance, uh, and they're essentially creating teams much like they do in the sense of a hurricane where they will share resources with one another uh, with an effective entity to help bring power, restore power as quickly as possible. They're creating a system of support uh, in the same way for cyber incidents. And so how do we best support that effort and how do we help integrate into it as well uh, in the event of a significant cyber incident? Jen, that was a great explanation. It's, uh, there's a ton of fascinating things going on around cybersecurity. Let me just switch gears for a second and, and bring Max back into the discussion. Max, you've been, again, CIO at the Energy Department for only a short time, and I know it's, it's you kind of have to get get the lay of the land a little bit, get your feet wet, as we like to say. But if you can, give me a sense of, of why you came to Energy and then you know, what are some of the priorities, even even though you haven't been there that long, what are some of the things you're really starting to focus on at the Energy Department? One of the big reasons I came over, frankly, was having been around D.C. for a while and uh, around federal government. I had some awareness, which is growing every day, of of the capabilities and the different things that Department of Energy works on, uh, certainly the labs, just the, the level of, of capability and the kind of projects they're working on, I think those are attractive to anybody who is interested in technology. Again, as Jennifer pointed out, we have a very unique and specific role um, in cybersecurity, uh, which obviously is you know, certainly a professional interest of mine. And so that that was an attraction for me as well, was to be a part of that. We have a very important role. You know, one quick thing I'll point out is that we have, most people aren't aware, we've got the power our marketing administrations, uh, they're essentially marketing and putting out the uh, hydroelectric power that the federal government generates to actually go into the grid. And so we actually have in-house here at Department of Energy essentially our own you know, version of the same as, you know, all the private sector groups who are doing power. And so that gives us, again, a unique set of very practical capabilities around understanding how to protect and secure the grid. Uh, and so I think we've got a lot of little things like that here all over the department uh, where we've got that unique capability. And for me, that that's encouraging. You know, part of what I've come here to do as I walked in you know, I understood the secretary already had the right priorities. You know, he's got priorities around cybersecurity, both for the department, meaning we, you know, if we're going to go out and talk about and do cybersecurity uh, with the sectors and with uh, the United States at large, we got to make sure we're doing it well here within the department. Uh, and so that has been a major focus for him. And of course, the modernization piece, um, which is, you know, moving the federal forward, making sure that we're spending taxpayer money well, but also making sure that we're, you know, especially when it comes to commodity and things like that, uh, we're moving to the cloud. We're doing the things that other people are doing. We've got, I believe, 97 sites and labs across 26 states. So for us, the concept of a decentralized sort of cloud model 
for a lot of our commodity computing really works very well. And again, because we've got capability being built day after day at the labs, um, we've got a lot of partners and opportunities to bring the newest things and basically make ourselves into guinea pigs to test some of the new tools and uh, some of the new capabilities the labs are developing every day. And so that that's going to be a lot of our focus here. And again, I walked in knowing the secretary had these as priorities. And, you know, when I saw that, that was something I wanted to be a part of. All right. Very nice. No, I thought that was great. Thank you very much. We have to take a break. My guests today are Max Everett, the Chief Information Officer of the Department of Energy, and Jennifer Silk, a Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity at DOE. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, I sat down with Kevin Cox, the Program Manager for the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program at the Homeland Security Department. Talk a little bit about, for the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation program, the supply chain risk management plan framework you guys released toward the end of July, early August. Essentially, what the requirements are for a vendor submitting to be added to the CDM approved products list is that they have to complete a questionnaire around their products being submitted the questionnaire addresses some background relating to the manufacturer and just getting some information uh, in regards to having some visibility in terms of how the product was manufactured, uh, what kind of visibility there was in terms of tracking uh, the supply chain of, of the product and, and the, uh, in many cases, the original equipment manufacturer and just having knowledge of that a chain of transfer uh, for the, the product and the elements of the product, uh, the components of the product, to give anyone that's using the CDM approved products list a better sense that, that the vendors, uh, integrators offering products on the approved products list have given some thought and, and are, are really looking into understanding the supply chain of the products they're offering. This obviously begs the question, this is part of the move to the GSA, both the Alliant contract, but also more, more specifically the, the Schedule 70 SIN. What was being done before? I mean, this is a new supply chain risk management framework, but you guys were not not doing supply chain risk management previously. That's exactly right. What we've done here is simply matured a little bit the, the supply chain assessment that we've done with products that were being submitted for inclusion on the CDM approved products list. Before, as, as the, uh, the listeners may recall, we had a series of blanket purchase agreements that we worked with GSA to make available uh, to the agencies to uh, access products that were tied to continuous diagnostics and mitigation, uh, that's just getting better visibility from a continuous monitoring standpoint. And with that, anytime uh, a product was, uh, was submitted for inclusion on that APL, that approved products list, they had to go through a, uh, an assessment process, and that assessment process had a series of different criteria that were uh, reviewed, and also a part of those criteria were some supply chain-related questions, just in terms of understanding the submitter of the product and making sure that they had uh, given some thought to how the, the product originated and how its different components originated. What we've done in regards to the, the updated approach with the approved products list uh, under the special item number on IT Schedule 70 was really to enhance that set of criteria, enhance those questions, where we really now are tracking the vendors that are submitting uh, products, tracking that they're thinking through uh, a series of questions relating to 
understanding how the product was developed, code in the product was developed, where appropriate uh, performing security tests and evaluation scans of the product, uh, just to really uh, mature the visibility that the government has in terms of the products it's offering out to the agencies and to to uh, the states, locals, tribes, and territories, and that the vendors have done their assessment of the products and can stand by what they're submitting. So when they do submit the product, they submit a questionnaire along with it to show that they've thought through, that they've done the research, have done the scanning as appropriate, and, and have good oversight in regards to supply chain risk management. Is this a vendor-only process, meaning I'm the vendor, I have a product, I'm going to submit it to the SIN, I fill out this questionnaire, DHS reviews it, and if it all makes sense, I'm good to go? Or is there a third party, is there an IVMV, if you will, happening by a third party uh, set of experts? We do work with a federally funded research and development corporation that helps with the assessment, the products that are submitted to the approved products list. We have our government team working with them, but they also have folks in, engaged to, to assess the responses from the vendors, the, taking a look at, at how the different criteria are met, uh, how the questions were answered. Uh, so just bringing in a, uh, another an independent uh, group to take a look and, and make sure that, that what is being submitted is valid, that the vendors have taken the time and done their due diligence uh, to really make sure uh, that they're, they're, they know the product and are comfortable going forward with the product getting added onto the approved products list. And I'll take a guess here, but the FFRDC, I'm guessing here is MITRE? Uh, yes, they're right. involved with this process. If I'm a vendor who's been on CDM, and do I have to submit this questionnaire as well, or is this only for new vendors? With the previous approved products list, we had somewhere of around 70,000 different products on that. And so... While we would have liked to have gone back and reassessed all of those products, the overhead and level of effort to do that, as compared to all the other activities we had, uh, it just didn't make sense at this time to to reassess all of those. So those products that were on the previous approved products list have been transferred over, grandfathered in, uh, so to speak, to the, the new approved products list on IT Schedule 70 under the special item number. And then the new products will go, anyone, any vendor submitting a, a new product for inclusion it will go through the process. And any product that was already on the approved products list, if it's being resubmitted for update, product has, has matured, evolved, and is really a, a new type of product, it would as well have to go through the supply chain risk management questionnaire process. Uh, so the, the aim is that over time, the products that were already on the existing uh, approved products list will ultimately, as they get uh, updated, uh, will go through the scrim review as well. Does that concern you at all? I mean, I know, again, you didn't start from zero. It's not like you haven't been doing supply chain risk management. But should agencies worry or should, should vendors worry that, hey, my product will be looked at differently or that, that older product will, is not as safe as a newer product. Is that a concern you guys are aware of or at least are, are something that you're trying to help alleviate or, or get ahead of? Yeah, it's all part of a, our own risk management from a program standpoint and, and needing to make decisions in terms of where we place focus going forward in regards to all the, the different CDM-related activities we need to do. 
like you said, we originally with the, the original approved products list, we weren't starting for ze- from zero. So we did have some insight into the, the supply chain uh, of the products that were on the APL. What we're doing now is really expanding out what we were able to do before and, and making sure that we're asking the vendor community uh, to be aware, too, of the products that they're offering, what uh, what has gone into them, what uh, how they've gone from development to being marketed and, and being made available to a customer. What we're doing is really taking it to the next level. So there, as with any risk management process, you do have to make some decisions as to where you're going to place your resources. If we had placed resources in terms of reassessing all the products on the original APL list, it really would have taken us from doing activities that will provide even more value from a risk standpoint to the agencies. So we felt that the risk was acceptable. And then also to, to reiterate the idea that those products that are already on the APL, they, they will eventually have to be reassessed. And so we will pick those up uh, as they get resubmitted uh, to the APL. Uh, so gain more confidence that Ultimately, all the products on the approved products list have gotten some more deeper view of what their supply chain is and, and how the, the code was developed, et cetera. Was there any talk about could we automate some of the supply chain review? Could you set up any sort of third party, if you will, MITRE, as is just an example, but I'm sure there's plenty of other people out there, to, to look at all those 70,000 products just based on an open source in an automated way, you know, did product X from vendor Y have a breach recently like, that's a public knowledge? Or, or did you look at anything in that realm to say at least we could give those 70,000 products, which is a huge amount without a doubt, some at least some initial, add some rigor to it that maybe these new products also will have? Yeah, we had really looked across the spectrum in terms of how we wanted to mature this process and, and add additional capabilities in terms of helping customers of the products gain confidence that they, they have a, a sense of the, the supply chain process the, the product took to um, be made available to them. Uh, so there are still some things that we're looking at in the long run to really continue to build that confidence in the products being offered on the APL and then really taking it uh, to the next level to make sure that all the products, including the original products that were offered uh, on the approved products list have that that deeper level of assessment. And so what we're offering today in, in our supply chain risk management plan is is the next logical step for getting a better understanding of the products. But we're continuing to look at, at like you had suggested, looking at ways that we can make sure that uh, all the products are meeting certain criteria at a more advanced level than we started out with in the program. And so we continue to to look at ways to uh, be able to uh, enhance uh, what we're offering today, not only on these new products being offered, but on the existing ones as well. We have to take a break. My guest is Kevin Cox, the Program Manager for the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program at the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. 
My guest today is Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM, program at the Homeland Security Department. What should agencies really look at when they're looking at this? If I'm an agency who's going to go buy something off uh, Schedule 70, uh, that, that SIN for CDM, what should I be looking for in the risk management plan? W- what are some of the things that you think are most important? So the way we've set up the um, plan is that the vendors submitting products to the APL go through the questionnaire, offer their responses in terms of their understanding of the supply chain of the products that they're uh, proposing for the inclusion on the approved products list. And then they submit that questionnaire, plus they have the opportunity to submit any additional information that they would like to be included. We state in the plan that any information that is submitted relating to supply chain risk management is available and can be made available to the, the agencies or, or the, the requesters of, to procure products through the APL. So any information that is provided by the vendors will be made available to those customers uh, so that the customers will have the same visibility that we, the program, uh, the CDM program, as well as GSA have. And so that will allow the customers uh, an opportunity to review the information. Uh, They may be comfortable with it. They may have further questions. They can have a a further discussion with the vendor, uh, or they could say that, their assessment of the risk is different from what we, the program, have offered and choose not to use the product. Or they could be in agreement and and fully comfortable with the information that they've seen and and go forward. So we want to be transparent in regards to uh, our assessment process, uh, transparent in terms of the information that that we have available so that the customers can uh, really do their own assessment and make their own risk decisions going forward with any products that they may procure off the approved products list. Now, I know this just was released. Agencies and and vendors are just getting started. What kind of timeline are we looking at? Do you expect the first set of products to go through this supply chain risk management process into the winter by early, by next spring? When should agencies and and vendors look for what kind of timeline should they look for? We're looking uh, to start this month. Uh, We'll have our first open season to allow vendors to submit their products. So starting in August, uh, we'll be uh, working to do the assessment and and get those assessed as quickly as possible. And the products that pass all the criteria uh, that are assessed not only with supply chain, but all the criteria that the CDM program has tied to the approved products list. Uh, We want to get through those review process, make sure all the criteria are met as quickly as possible, and get the, the vendor products added on to the APL as quickly as possible. Thereafter, we're looking to have uh, an open season each month where vendors can submit their products. Uh, We go through the review process and then make the determination as to whether or not a a product meets the criteria and then gets added onto the approved products list. The real improvement in this process is that before, uh, with the approved products list, the products had to be submitted through the BPA holders and the, the integrators that were tied to those. And so the vendors had to go up through uh, another uh, party to submit their products. Now the vendors can submit directly. The other improvement is that before we had much longer windows in regards to products being able to be considered for the approved products list. Now we've tightened that time frame so that vendors can submit them much more frequently. And we also are looking to be able to encourage innovative products to be added on more quickly so that uh, with that month-long review process, 
We can keep new products being brought in. We can bring in products that offer new innovations much more quickly. And so the, the turnaround in terms of what's available to the customers is much quicker, and they, they can get to uh, these potentially innovative products more quickly than what we could offer in the past. And what about the redress issue? If, if I'm a vendor who's submitting my products and I get rejected, hey, you didn't meet our criteria or you are falling short and we have concerns, what kind of redress do they have? Or We have, with our prior process through the approved products list, we had an uh, opportunity for the vendor and in that case, they, they were coming through the integrator to come back to us, the program, and we could have a discussion in regards to what criteria were not met, what the vendor uh, would need to do in order to meet that, that set of criteria, and then they could resubmit. And, and the, that same process will be in place this time as well. If something uh, does not meet the, all the criteria that are associated with the APL, the vendor can come back to us and we'll go when we provide the information back to the vendor, we'll tell them which areas that the, the product, uh, did, which set of criteria the product didn't meet. We're open to having a discussion with that vendor to help them get a better understanding of what they need to do in order to submit the information to make sure that the, the product they're, they're providing can meet all the, all the different criteria and can be included on the APL. The other piece of this as well is the cost. Is there any concern that you've heard from vendors or from agencies that this is going to cost the vendor community a lot of money to go through this questionnaire and, and, and collect the data and then give you guys the data, and that cost then will be flowed down to the agencies? We haven't had any direct questions that I'm aware of. There was some concern that, that we had to find the balance. We didn't want to create a, um, a process that was uh, so arduous that it would really uh, take a a huge amount of effort and, and require uh, much greater costs for agencies to be able to prove that their product met the supply chain criteria. So what we've done, we feel that we've we hit a, a balance point where we're able to get better insight uh, in terms of the, the supply chain associated with the products that, that we're including on our approved products list at the same time making it manageable for the vendor community so that it doesn't increase their costs and so that those additional costs don't get passed on to the customer. So at this point, we haven't had any specific questions or, or complaints. The process is, is too arduous or, or overly arduous and, and too, uh, too much is going to be involved to be able to get a, a product approved. And so we'll, as we go forward in this, the use of the, the new special item number on IT Schedule 70 associated with the approved products list, we'll see how it, it works for the vendor community. We do want to hear uh, if there are concerns that it is uh, too steep a hill to climb. But we feel at this time, and based on the feedback we've received so far, working with the various parties that, that we've threaded the needle, so that we've, like I said earlier, we've matured our supply chain assessment process, but done it in a way that, that is not introducing new costs to the vendor that, that then get carried over and passed on to the customer. That's all the time we have for today. My guest was Kevin Cox, the program manager for the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM program at the Homeland Security Department. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 